All right. Well, I want to start off with a question. How many of us have been guilty at one time or another of getting a gift card as a gift and then not spending all of the money that was on the gift card, okay? Probably more of us than we'd like to admit and probably more often than we would like to admit. But just to make that point, there was actually a survey done in 2005 to 2011. There was some research done, and they calculated how much money Americans lost by not spending gift cards over that six-year period from 2005 to 2011, okay? I want you guys, we're going to have a little crowd interaction right now. I want you guys to come up with that number and get that number in your head, okay? How much money do you think Americans wasted in that six years, 2005 to 2011, by not spending all of their gift cards? Okay, get a number in your head. You have 10 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Yep, everybody stand up. We're going to be interactive. Okay. If you think that Americans lost under $50 million, if your number was under $50 million, sit down. Okay. Okay. If, okay, hold on. If you think that the number's lower than $500 million, sit down. If you think the number is lower than $1 billion, sit down. If you think the number is lower than $5 billion, sit down. If you think the number is below $10 billion, sit down. If you think the number is below $20 billion, sit down. If you believe the number is lower than $40 billion, sit down. (laughs) What do you guys think? 65, 100, 80, it was 41 billion dollars. 41 billion, that's with a B, 41 billion dollars Americans wasted by not using their gift cards over a six-year period. That is the gross domestic product of the Ivory Coast, okay, in one year. That's how much money that we wasted. Well, (laughs) What's my point with this other than getting you to reevaluate if you're ever going to give a gift card as a graduation or wedding present again? <laughs> well, my point, <laughs> my point is this. That is a tragedy that Americans are wasting a gift that they have received by other people who have worked hard and sacrificed to give that gift. Okay, that is a tragedy. But here's the thing. That's not the biggest tragedy going on with Americans wasting something that's been graciously given to them. Tonight, we're going to talk about a gift far more precious than gift cards, far more precious than money. We're going to talk about the reality of what God gives us through the gift of salvation. And tonight, specifically, we're going to talk about how many people, how many Christ followers are wasting the gift of sanctification that God gives us in our lives. How we can be sanctified to look more like Christ the gift that God gives us for us to be able to actively pursue spiritual growth in our lives. But as we look around, there's a lot of people who are sometimes just entertained by the same things that the world are. 
There's a lot of people that are addicted to distraction that excuse their sin. There are a lot of professing Christ followers who are just complacent in their spiritual walks. And it's a tragedy. It's the biggest waste when Christian men and women don't pursue spiritual growth. They don't pursue sanctification. They don't pursue Christ-likeness in their lives. It's a tragedy when men and women of Christ waste their lives on the kingdom of this world rather than investing in the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking about tonight in our passage in Philippians 2. Paul is reminding the Philippian believers, the church at Philippi, of the amazing things that they have experienced through the grace of God and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. Uh, Just before our section tonight, we're reminded that Jesus humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And Jesus suffered and endured all these things so that we could be saved, right? So that we could be saved, so that we could be delivered. But here's the problem. So many times when we talk about salvation, we only focus on one dimension of it. So when we think about salvation, we always talk about how Jesus sets us free from the punishment for our sins. So that by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we die, we can go to heaven because Jesus bore the punishment for our sins on the cross and we don't have to go to hell. Now that is absolutely true. There's the heartbeat of the gospel. That's one of the most beautiful things we see in scripture. But the reality is, that's just one facet of what salvation should be in our lives. Because Jesus didn't die just to set us free from the punishment for sin. Jesus also died to set us free from the power of sin in our lives as well. As Romans 8 would say, before we have a relationship with Christ, we are literally enslaved to the tyranny of sin. We cannot help but sin. We cannot do otherwise. But from the moment that we put our trust in Christ, we are now set free from that captivity, and we have the choice of whether or not we want to give in to sin. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no, and we can actively pursue spiritual growth to look more like Christ, to be this word, sanctify. To pursue sanctification. What do we mean when we use that word sanctification? That's one that we use a lot in church, but sometimes we don't always unpack as often as we should. Sanctification is really talking about the process of growing in holiness in our lives. It's the reality that this side of eternity, we will never be sinless, we'll never be perfect, but we can see ourselves sinning less than we did and looking more like Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. Jesus didn't just die to purchase us fire insurance for all of eternity. He also purchased us the freedom to live as God wants us to live right here and right now on this earth. And the sad thing is there are a lot of Christians who are leaving sin unbattled in their lives, scripture unread, friends unevangelized, and spiritual gifts unused. There's a lot of Christians that think, oh, that sanctification thing, that's for the honor students. <laughs> that's for the overachievers. That's for the guy, you know, that's for, I'm just kind of your mid-level, C-level Christian. Like, that. that's not for me. But maybe that's your mindset tonight. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's us. And, and if we were to look at our lives before our salvation and after, we'd say, you know, I see a little bit of change, but I really don't see that much change. Instead of radical transformation, maybe we just see Uh, a little bit of radical stagnation, right? There's not much changing. Instead of seeing a passion to grow in Christ-likeness, we just are kind of passionate about the same old things. 
Instead of seeing maybe a lot of victory in our lives, maybe we would see a string of defeat. Well, if that's us tonight, then we need to be both convicted and also encouraged from the words that we're going to encounter in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So why don't you guys follow along in your Bibles while I go ahead and just read those two short verses right now. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the overt theme in these two verses is sanctification, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But this is a passage that can sometimes be misapplied and misunderstood. So we're going to talk about what Scripture actually says about the process of sanctification within a Christian's life. But as we jump into this, let me just start by giving you the big idea for this passage. If we were to summarize this to one line, this is what Paul is essentially saying. We need to work out because God is working in. That's essentially what Paul's saying here. We need to work out because God is working in. Essentially, he's saying don't waste your life. Don't let the power of the Holy Spirit go untapped in your life. Don't uh, grow complacent with allowing your flesh to control the direction of your life, but instead, as Romans 8 would say, be in step and let the, let the Spirit lead you, right? He's saying, uh, make sure that you are living out your salvation, your new identity as a Christ follower, as a child of Christ. So tonight, we're going to look at two different roles in sanctification. We're going to look at our role in sanctification, and then we're going to look at God's role and sanctification. Two complementary truths. Both are absolutely necessary for us to grow in our spiritual lives. So the first thing, what's our role? It's simple. Pursue spiritual growth. Pursue spiritual growth. That's what Paul is saying here. First and foremost, we are called to pursue spiritual growth in our lives. And we're going to see maybe four things that tell us how to do that from verse 12. The first one is this. If we are to pursue spiritual growth, if we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, just that reality teaches us the fact that sanctification is not automatic and effortless for the Christian believer. It's not automatic and it's not effortless. It takes time. Sanctification is not, as the bumper sticker would say, let go and let God. No, it's to be active. It's to be disciplined. It's to be striving towards maturity in our lives. It's not something that just happens the moment that you become a, a Christ follower, right? It's not automatic. I was thinking about this the other day. A lot of the times when you begin a new job at work, sometimes they uh, automatically enroll you in certain benefits, and you have to go and say, I don't want these to pull yourself out of, right? That, that's, not, that's not exactly what's going on here. Uh, when you put your faith in Christ, you're not automatically going to say, okay, now everything's going to be easy, and I'm going to be righteous, and it's just automatic, and I can just run on auto drive. That's not what this is talking about. He's saying, no, you have to fight for that. You have to pursue that. It's a lot more like building spiritual muscles, and building spiritual muscles is just like building physical muscles. 
You can't do a good job of building physical muscles if every day your butt's just on the couch and you're eating a bunch of junk food, right? Like, that doesn't work very well. If you found a way to build muscles doing those things, please talk to me afterwards, right? Like, that's not how building physical muscles works. How do you build physical muscles? Well, you have to go and you have to go to the gym and you have to be disciplined and you have to work hard. You have to strain yourself. You have to eat healthy. It takes effort. It takes discipline. And scripture goes out of its way to say that's a reality in the Christian life. Just listen to the words that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says this in verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't just box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Literally, in the Greek, he says, I, I, I punch my, I, I give myself a black eye to con- keep myself under control. That's what he's saying there. I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should myself be disqualified. Paul says, in my spiritual life, I run, I train, I fight, I discipline, I do what I can to pursue Christ's likeness in my life. So we have to realize that as we talk about the topic of sanctification, it's not just easy and it's not just automatic, but it's something that takes effort and intentionality on our part. There's a lot of Christians that want the Staples easy button version of Christianity, right? Remember those commercials from years ago where something's complicated and Staples that just push the easy button and then everything magically gets taken care of? Aren't there a lot of Christians who try to do that in their spiritual life? I want to look more like Christ. I, I want to do the right thing. But right now, sin is tempting me. And I don't actually want to fight it. I just want to hit the easy button for it to be gone, right? Wouldn't that be great? doesn't work that way. There's not the easy button. There's the button of prayer. There's the button of saying that. There's all these other buttons that God gives us. But it's not the easy button. It takes work. It takes intentionality. So that's the first thing that we have to remember. We have to be active participants in our sanctification. It takes intentionality. The second thing that it takes, though, is this. It also takes consistency. It also takes consistency. Notice what Paul says as he continues on in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you, as, as you have always obeyed, so now, he's saying, continue to obey, not just in my presence, but also, even more so, in my absence. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's kind of saying an insightful, he's kind of giving us an insightful lesson. Paul's saying, you know what, it's kind of easy to obey the Lord when your pastor's hovering over you. He says, I'm getting ready to leave for a while, and you got to still obey. you got to be consistent, even when your pastor's in a different zip code. Because as he looked at the Philippian believers, he's looking at their lives and he's saying, you guys are really good at getting along and doing the right thing when I'm there. You give the Sunday school answers, you raise your hand and say, Jesus, right? Like, you know, you got everything going, you're doing great. He goes, but every time I leave, you start to fight, you start to get in divisions, you start pulling down the mass and letting your true colors show. He says, you got to be consistent. If you're pursuing Christ when I'm there, you got to pursue Christ when I'm not there as well. And it's teaching us an important lesson about our own spiritual lives. And and that's really this. We can't make our spiritual growth dependent on a single person rather than being dependent on our own desire to have a better relationship with Christ. We can't make our relationship with Christ dependent on another human person. Now, does that mean we don't need pastors and accountability partners and small groups? 
Absolutely not. We need those people in our lives. And scripture's clear about that. But what it's saying is, your pastor's no substitute for Jesus. Your spouse is no substitute for Jesus. Your parents are no substitute for Jesus. You have to make sure that your sanctification is fueled by desire to love Jesus and to serve Jesus and to love God the Father and not just to please another person in your life. So what does that look like? Well, you know, I used to be a, a high school pastor before I moved here. And one of, the, one of the saddest things about being a high school pastor is when you see some of your most committed students graduate, go to college, and then just totally walk away from the faith, right? And I've had a few do that, that I can look back over the last couple of years. Well, what happened? They, they seemed like they had it all together. Well, because they really liked having a good relationship with the pastor and they really liked fitting in with the church crowd at our youth group on Wednesdays. But when you looked at their hearts, it wasn't really about Jesus. It was all about impressing other people, right? They, they wanted that uh, attention that came from showing other people how spiritual they were. So high schoolers, if you're just going through the motions to please your parents, don't confuse that with authentic faith in the Lord because that won't last when you go to college when your parents aren't there. Parents, if you're just going through the motions to put on a good charade for your kids while they're in the house, that's not good enough because when your kids graduate, you'll wander away from the church, and we see that happen far too often. Guys or girls out there, if you're just trying to clean yourself up a little bit to impress that girl to get her to go on a date or impress that guy to get because they know they won't date someone unless they're a Christian, don't confuse that with authentic faith because if that relationship doesn't work out or even if it does, you might start drifting away because you don't really love Jesus. You're just trying to use Jesus to impress another person. We have to be consistent. Our sanctification can't be dependent on trying to impress another person. Well, you know, as we continue on with our passage, he says this next line in verse 12, talking about sanctification, that's a little bit interesting. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. What is Paul saying here? Is Paul saying that we need to work hard to earn God's favor and to earn our salvation? Is Paul saying that you need to work hard so that God accepts you and that God will save you because you've earned your forgiveness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The third thing we learn about sanctification from this passage is that we can never confuse sanctification with justification. We can never confuse sanctification with justification. Because look at the words closely. Paul does not say work to earn your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. Those would come in direct contradiction with what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. He's saying no. Salvation, justification, being declared right and beginning that relationship with God, that is a work that is 100% done by God. Justification, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, right? That is what justification is all about. But notice what Paul's saying here. He says, work out your salvation. He's saying, you're already saved, now you need to live like it. He said, the moment that you put your trust in Christ and became a new creation, you were adopted into his family. You became a son or a daughter of the king. He says, now you got to live like it. There's some household rules. 
you have to act like a prince. You have to act like a princess. Sorry, you probably don't like being called a princess. But you know what I mean? You have to act like a child of the king. You have to act like a child of the king. You have to live out that new identity. And you know, that's one of the most unique things about the Christian faith. Because every other man-made religion across the entire world says you have to earn your place in the kingdom. You have to do what it takes to make God happy with you. But Christianity says there's nothing that we could do. And that's exactly why God had to send Jesus to come and to live the perfect life on our behalf and to die the death that we deserved so that when we put our faith in him and repent of our sins, we can have eternal life. So we work out what God has already worked into us. God has already given us the new identity. Now he's saying, I expect you to live like it. I'm giving you the gift of being part of my family, being my child. Don't squander it. Live like my child. Keep my my household commandments, right? So sanctification is the grateful response to the salvation and grace that we've already experienced through Christ. But you know, lastly, Paul reminds us of the attitude that we should maintain as we pursue spiritual growth. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to pursue spiritual growth with fear and trembling. What does that mean, right? Because when we hear the words fear and trembling, it probably conjures up images of all of us being evacuated into the hallways with our heads tucked down to our knees and just kind of like closing our ears as the tornado sirens are going off of impeding doom, right? That's the fear and trembling. You're a little child like shaking with fear that something's coming to wipe you out. Is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what he means by fear and trembling? No, not really. I I think that translation does a disservice to what Paul's actually trying to communicate. Because these two words, when you look at them in the original language, they can have the negative connotation of being afraid and trembling and and being afraid that someone's going to come knock you out, right? So it it could mean that we need to be afraid that God's going to come, you know, knock us out like a tornado if we're not obedient. But we know that's not true from the rest of Scripture. If we're Christ followers, what does Romans 8 say? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I think of what John writes in 1 John 4 when he says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So that can't be what he's talking about here. Well, fear and trembling can have a more positive connotation, and a better translation would be this, reverence and awe reverence and awe. Work out your own salvation with reverence and awe for who you are obeying. So essentially he's saying this, in light of how much God loves you, in light of how much that Jesus has done for you, in light of how much that the king of the universe, the sovereign lord of the universe, sacrificed so that you could have a right relationship with him, he says, you better accept the call and say, how could I not want to live as your child now? How could I not respect my father? How could I not want to live a transformed life? It's the reverence and awe that comes from appreciative and grateful hearts for all that God has done for us. True gratitude leads to a desire to please and to honor. So here's just a very small example, in in no way uh, comparable to what's going on here, but just a small example to show what I'm talking about here. Um, 
On Sunday mornings when I preach in the main service, I work out my sermons when Jeff is out there listening with fear and trembling, okay? What I mean by that is with reverence and awe because I'm a young guy and for Jeff, uh, Pastor Jeff to allow me to go and to preach in the main service, that, I take that very seriously. That, that's a gift. That's something that, that is weighty to me. And, and obviously, I want to do it for God's glory, and I, I want to make sure I'm saying what God wants to say. But also, I want to get up there and not make people say, Jeff, what were you thinking? This guy was a train wreck, right? That would be so embarrassing for me if someone would go and say that to Jeff, not because I'm terrified that Jeff's going to be the angry tornado that you know just knocks me down, but I, I don't want to disappoint him because of all the trust that he's all the things that he's entrusted to, to me, right? This is just a small example, but I think that's what Paul's talking about here. So as we put this all together, as we talk about pursuing spiritual growth in our lives, we see that it has to be intentional. We see that it has to be consistent. We see that it can't be confused with trying to earn our salvation. And lastly, we see that it needs to be done with an attitude of reverence and awe. So h- how, what can we practically do? What can we practically do to start pursuing spiritual growth in our lives. Well, I could give an entire sermon on that topic and talk for hours on that, but I would just start with a couple simple things. This is your entry-level workout plan for spiritual gains. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about for a minute. So the first one is this. We need to daily set our minds on the things above instead of the things here below. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you've been raised with Christ, therefore set your mind on the things uh, above. So every single day, we need to intentionally find ways to direct our mind towards God, towards heaven, towards eternity, and not be overcome with the distractions that we face every day here on this earth. So that might mean just when we wake up in the morning, just before we ever get out of bread, just spending a couple minutes praying for God to immediately that day get our mind in the right perspective. Maybe it's listening to a Christian podcast in our morning routine or some worship music. Maybe it's just being mindful of the people that we're surrounding ourselves or the shows we're watching and the music that we're listening to and finding more avenues to direct our thoughts toward things of eternal importance than things that are just distracting here in this life. We need to set our minds on things above. Second, we need to lay aside every sin and weight that clings so closely, Hebrews 12. We have to cast aside the sin and the weights, the distractions that try to cling to us and, dis- and get us, uh, uh, turn our attention away from Christ. Essentially, pursuing spiritual growth means that we take sin seriously in our lives. The Holy Spirit, as he works in our lives, he's going to convict us of sin. He's going to expose things. And in, the, in those moments, we have a decision. We can either harden our hearts or we can respond and say, okay, what can I do to get real about this? What measures can I take? Who can I talk to to hold me accountable? What can I do to curtail this sin in my life and to try to grow and defeat this sin? We have a choice whether we want to harden our hearts or soften our hearts. Well, in those moments, we have to take those measures to say, okay, I'm going to pursue real accountability. I'm going to share what's going on. I'm going to get radical about the sin in my life to try to expose that and let that die. We need to lay aside the sin and the weights. Third, we need to practice the spiritual disciplines in our lives. The spiritual disciplines. 
as we pursue our sanctification, God has given us channels of transforming grace. Essentially, the Bible says there are things that God has designed so so that as we kind of place our life in the stream of them, they're going to take us down to spiritual maturity and help us grow. They're things that we call the spiritual disciplines. It's not just something that we rotely do through and it's just going to magically change us, but God says if you do these with a true heart that wants to love me and grow closer to me, I'm going to grow you through them. Things like scripture reading and meditation and scripture study. Things like communal worship, like what we're doing tonight. Things like evangelism. Things like journaling. Things like prayer. Those are the things that God says, I've given you these practices to help you be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So that's what we're called to do. Ultimately, sanctification is to sin less and look more like Jesus. Okay, now, as you're hearing that, this sounds like a pretty high calling. It sounds intimidating. And if we're being honest, maybe some of you are out there today saying, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I I will never be the type of Christian that you're talking about. Like, I'm just too weak. I can't do it. My flesh is too strong. You don't understand. That's never going to be me. When you hear us talking about sanctification and looking more like Christ, maybe it sounds like a gigantic, massive, impeding mountain that you're being told to climb, and you're standing off in the distance thinking, there is no way I'm ever going to get to the top of that mountain. I just can't do it. That actually reminded me of a, of a story of uh, a 12-year-old boy. He's not 12 anymore, but he was when the story took place. A 12-year-old boy uh, named Jordan. 12-year-old boy named Jordan. Ramiro. And when Jordan was 12 years old, his dad came to him one day. He had been doing a little bit of mountain climbing, a little bit of uh, expedition with his dad and things, and he had kind of developed a heart for it. Well, one day his dad came to him when he was 12 years old, and he said, how about this? How about next year you climb Mount Everest? He said this to his 12-year-old, right? You climb Mount Everest. Uh, What do you think your response would be as a 12-year-old? That's impossible, (laughs) right? No, (laughs) I can't do that. Uh, I'll I'll never be strong enough. How would I find my way up the mountain? How would I pay for all the gear? How would I pay for the pass? All these things. I can't do it on my own. There's absolutely no way that I could ever climb Mount Everest as a 12-year-old. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough by myself. And he was right. He's not strong enough by himself. But here's the thing. His dad didn't tell him to do it by himself. His dad said, if you want to climb Mount Everest with me, (laughs) I'll take care of everything and make sure that you make it to the top. His father issued the challenge, but his father also provided everything that he needed to complete the challenge as well. So the son said yes. So the father did a rigorous training regiment for the next year for diet and exercise and walking and all these things to get them into tip-top shape that they would need to climb Mount Everest. The father bought all the tens of thousands worth of dollars of gear that they would need. He secured the $25,000 pass that you need to climb uh, the mountain in uh, Mount Everest. He secured all the travel arrangements. He secured a guide to take them up. And then he personally accommodated his son up the mountain to be there every step of the way. And next year, at 13 years old, he still holds the world record for the youngest child to ever climb Mount Everest, 13 years old, right? It would have been impossible for a 13-year-old to climb the mountain on his own. But the father provided everything that he needed. So when we hear the challenge for sanctification in our lives, and we think that's impossible, well, it is (laughs) on our own power. But here's the thing, God issues the challenge, but we have a father who also supplies the tools 
the guide, everything that we need to make it to the top of the mountain. And that's what verse 13 is all about. It says, work out, but here's the thing, because God's working in. God's giving you everything you need. He says, work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God promises to equip us for the spiritual climb. He gives us all the equipment he needs. He secured our passes on the cross so we have access to this mountain to climb. He gives us the guide that we need to know how to get to the end destination. And he also promises that he will accompany us every step of the way by giving us the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. When God said he's powerfully working in us, what does he mean by that? He literally means he is powerfully working in us. When we become Christians, when we become Christ followers, the Holy Spirit literally comes and indwells us. The third person of the Trinity comes and dwells within us to help transform us in this sanctification journey. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit's not this intangible thing. No, he's one of the members of the Trinity. He's the third person of the Trinity who's empowering our every step and there so that we can arrive at the mountaintop one day. I think a lot of Christians stall on their sanctification because they don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and they think that they're pursuing sanctification through their own strength. If we're pursuing sanctification through our own strength, we will, of course, feel discouraged and defeated because we're not powerful enough. We can't. But if we're pursuing sanctification through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's an entirely different story. When we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, there's so many things, but I just want to hit on a few. It's through the Holy Spirit that he illuminates our understanding of Scripture so that when we read God's Word, we can understand what's going on, and it will convict us and expose sin in our lives. It's through the Holy Spirit that we're guided away from sin and towards righteousness. Romans 8 says that we are led by the Spirit and he helps lead us where we should go. The Holy Spirit equips all of us with a spiritual gift that we can use. And as we use that gift in the church for the edification of the body, God promises to give us joy and help grow us in our faith. The Holy Spirit also prays to God on our behalf and reminds us that we are his children in moments of weakness. Lastly, the Holy Spirit promises to empower us for Christ-like living. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ, one degree to another degree of glory. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's doing the work to transform us to look more like Christ every single day. Just listen to that list and think how incredible that power and those blessings are that we have through the Holy Spirit. If, if we're willing to uphold our part of sanctification and obey and pursue that spiritual growth. God desires to give us new righteous desires that lead to a transformed life. He wants to give us new affections and new attitudes, but we have to faithfully allow him to do that work in our lives. 
We have to be faithful to use our spiritual gifts so that he can grow us. We have to be faithful to take off the earplugs and open up God's word and allow him to speak to us. We have to be faithful to pray to God and ask for the things that we need. And when we're struggling with sin, rather than trying to combat it on our own strength, we need to ask God for the strength and for the help and mercy in that moment of need. And when we do mess up, we don't need to hide it, but we need to have real repentance that confesses and asks God to forgive us of that sin, but also to give us the transforming grace so we don't fall back into the same sin. The tools are there. The power is there. But it's up to us to choose whether or not we want to use it. So as we think about sanctification tonight, it's a lifelong process of renovation in our spiritual lives. I love that analogy of renovation. How many of you have ever done home renovations at some point? Anyone? It's a real joy, isn't it? No. (laughs) Home renovations are hard in the moment of doing the renovation, but the joy comes when you see the completed work of the renovation. Uh, Just the last couple weeks, Megan and I at our house, we've been doing a renovation because ever since we got our house, there's been a problem. The basement floods all the time right? So to do that, we decided we were going to take out a big chunk of concrete, about a 20-foot area. We were going to dig a trench, put in drain tile, put in a sump pump, all these different things, right? We got a couple people to help us, and we spent a day doing all that. In the moment, it wasn't very fun, right? When you've got a concrete saw that's throwing dust water all across your basement, when you're sledging concrete and carrying out in five-gallon buckets all day long, right? Like, it's hard, laborious work. (laughs) It's difficult. It's not always fun but you get to have the joy when it's done and it works (laughs) so right now when there's a massive rainstorm you know what's happening our sump pump is going on and there's no flooding to go home and mop up right the joy of having the completed work of renovation well that's exactly what we need to keep in mind in our lives as as well I love using that renovation metaphor for God's work in our lives because God saw us and he saw the dump of a foreclosure that was our lives. (laughs) And it was getting ready to get demolished and torn down because it didn't have any value anymore, right? It was broken. It was, we destroyed it essentially. But God came and he purchased back that junk. He purchased back that, uh, that house that had been foreclosed upon. But he didn't want it just to stay in its disarray, in its broken state. God had a plan to transform it into a palace, to transform us into something new and, and beautiful. But here's the reality. That work is going to be done one day when we get to glory. And it's going to be so joyful to look back and see the work that was being done and to know that it's fixed. That we're not just freed from the punishment of sin and the power of sin. In eternity, we will also be delivered from the presence of sin. And we'll be incapable of sinning anymore. And God's work in us will be complete. But here's the thing. God wants to begin that renovation process right now in our lives. And that's going to be painful at moments because there's a lot of deep-seated sin that God has to pry up. There's a lot of walls of distraction and idolatry that need tore down. And there's a lot of new righteous things that need to be laid in its place. It's not always going to be fun in the moment. But we need to keep our eye on the finished product and remember that we're called to work out because God is working within us. So I know the mountaintop might seem very far away for some of you tonight, and maybe you are in a pit of discouragement and despair, but believe that God is at work within you. If you trust in Him, if you open yourself up to His transforming power, 
you can accomplish what he has said he wants to do in you. So let's keep that in mind. We work out because God has worked in us. Let's pray. Father, as we're convicted and challenged by this message tonight, it's just amazing to think that you would love us enough to save us from our sins, that you would love us enough to look at the foreclosure of our lives and to say that's something valuable, that's something that can be rescued, that's something that can be redeemed. Because, Father, we really did a number on our lives with the sin that we chose to follow. But, Father, your love was so great for us through Christ. And, Father, I pray that everyone in here has responded to that gospel message, that they've known the joy of having their sins forgiven by turning away from their sin and putting their trust in you. But if there's someone here tonight that hasn't done that, I pray that you work in their hearts and begin that work so that they can know you as their Lord and Savior tonight. But you know, Father, for the rest of us here that are professing sons and daughters of you, help us to live up to that identity. Help us to be willing to do the hard work to roll up our sleeves and say, you know what, I want to pursue spiritual growth. I want to work out because you're working in. So Father, show the ways in our life that we're falling short. Give us the encouragement that we need and help us to take the next step in our relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.